If you were to travel across our great nation line to Trans-Canada Highway, you would reach the halfway point just outside Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba. The easternmost of the Prairie Provinces, Manitoba covers 650,000 square kilometers of widely varied terrain. Arctic tundra, Hudson Bay coastline, lush thick forestry, and prairie grasslands all make up the province. Similar to other provinces previously discussed on the Some Weird podcast, European settlers began visiting Manitoba in the 1700s to establish the fur trading posts in order to make cool hats for rich people. The settlers didn't always pay proper attention to the rights of the indigenous people of the area leading to the Red River Rebellion led by Louis Riel. Joining Confederation on July 15, 1870, Manitoba became the fifth province of Canada and the first OG of the non-OGs. That's a thing, right? During the time of its creation, Manitoba was only one-eighteenth its current size and due to its shape, it was known as the Postage Stamp Province. Winnipeg, the capital of Manitoba, is one of Canada's major urban centers. The lovable children's character Winnie the Pooh is named after the city. It is also the Slurpee capital of the world, a title that's held for 19 years in a row. But more importantly than all this, at least to a brother and sister podcast duo, Manitoba is also the home of various tales of ghosts, haunted places, UFOs, and other oddities. So sit back if you're at home, keep your eyes on the road if you're driving, and push to run that extra mile if you're exercising, and get ready to have your mind blown with stories that are guaranteed to be mildly interesting, but also some weird. I hope we're a little bit more than mildly interesting. I think we are. I mean, I think we're at least a two-star review. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been to Manitoba. I've never been, um, I've never been west of Ontario, so I have no, no feel for what it's like there. I've never been there either. And by the way, welcome to the Some Weird Podcast. I am your co-host, Barry. And I'm your co-host, Chrissy. And sometimes I forget. Yeah. People know that now. Hopefully. Unless you're from Manitoba and you saw the hashtag Manitoba on the Twitter and you decided to check it out. Yeah, let's check this out. So we we got to make this good. I feel the pressure now. Yeah. Well, maybe if you did stumble along this, hopefully you enjoy it and you'll go back and listen to our back catalog. We have a whole season on Newfoundland and we're currently doing every province. Yep. So here we are in the Manitoba. Um, there got to be wrestlers from Manitoba. Who are they? Quite a few wrestlers. Number one, we'll go back to the old school. His gimmick was he was from Scotland, but he was actually from Manitoba. Mr. Rowdy Roddy Piper. Did you know that? <laughs> no! Yeah, he's Canadian from Manitoba. Okay. No, I assumed he was from Scotland. Why did I think anything was real in wrestling? But He did it so well. Did he even speak with an accent? No. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Another uh, famous wrestler from uh, Winnipeg. It's Chris Jericho. You know him? Um, I think he had to move the Walls of Jericho. Walls of Jericho, yeah, which was basically the Boston Crab. Was he the guy who went nuts and murdered everyone? No, that was Chris Benoit. Okay. Other famous people from Manitoba besides wrestlers, which, you know, I go all day with the wrestlers. Burton Cummings, he's in the band to Guess Who. They sing the song, uh, These Eyes, do-do-do-do-do. Oh, yes. Burton Cummings, he's a, he's a real unit. He got the big mustache and... <laughs> in our machine i bet you got a vinyl record there of him i do not really you gotta get your ass out to value village right now to get you one <laughs> get yourself a two dollar 
But Randy Bachman was also in that band. He had a band BTO and did Taking Care of Business. I'd be taking care of business. Every day. That was a Bishop O'Neill classic. Yeah, exactly. So you get, uh, what was buddy Max King up there. <laughs> so they're belting out to tunes. Yeah, um, okay. They actually played in Bear Arbor a couple of times. If you can play a concert in small town in Newfoundland, that means you made it. Listen, there's been lots of people that played in Bay Arbor. So I'm going to name them for you now. That fella that you just said, Burton Cummings, Helix. They were at the Bay <laughs> Arena. <laughs> Give me an R. That's Helix, right? Rock you. Give me an O. What's that spell? Rock you. Load it for action. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker, yeah. He played Coach's. April Wine played there. Uh, okay, yeah. They play there every year, I think. Every Tragically week. Tragically hip. No. <laughs> Dr. Hook? Oh, yes, Dr. Hook, yeah. Dr. Hook, I got a record of him with Dr. Hook. There's actually, Dr. Hook actually has good songs. Doctor, I'm, I'm a fan of Dr. Hook. I yeah. like Chubby Checker, too. I like Helix, too. I like Rock You. But anyway, Burton Cummings, like I said, he's a Canadian treasure. I'm sure he's in the Canada Walk of Fame. And I don't know, I think he, from my understanding, I think he's a bit of an odd bird. And one of the guys that I know from Manitoba told me that you can do a whole podcast about the amount of times you've seen him at 7-Eleven buying Slurpees. What's the deal with the Slurpees? Yeah, so another thing, yeah, but Winnipeg is the Slurpee capital of the world. And it's held that Why? title for 19 years in a row. Why? I don't know. But apparently it's a real thing that people go to the Sev, as they call it, 7-Eleven, and get Slurpees. They sell roughly 188,000 Slurpees a month in Winnipeg. Wow. Another famous person from uh, Manitoba. I had no idea this, this gentleman was from Manitoba. Terry Fox. I thought he was from British Columbia. I did too, but no. Now, Terry Fox is a Canadian icon and a Canadian hero. But you know what? He's not well known outside of Canada. Why don't you give like a quick rundown of what Terry Fox was all about? Well, so Terry Fox, he was a, uh, he was actually a great athlete in high school, a big basketball player in high school and in, in first year university anyway. He got into a, a car accident and they were doing some x-rays on his knee or whatever to see what kind of damage was there. And then he found there was some kind of cancer in his leg to the point where he actually had his leg amputated. And at the time, I guess, uh, he realized going through treatments and all that, there wasn't a lot of research into the specific type of cancer that he had. So he decided that he was going to, on one leg, run a marathon a day, starting in St. John's. He was going to run right across the country of Canada, raise money for cancer awareness. Mm -hmm. And I believe he was probably 20, 21 years old. 22, 23, I think. Yeah, he's quite, quite young. Yeah. Yeah, so it was called a Marathon of Hope. So he started in St. John's, Newfoundland. So he actually ran 26 miles a day. And he got as far as Thunder Bay, Ontario. And uh, unfortunately, his cancer had spread to his lungs and he ended up passing away. He raised an, a buttload of money for cancer research. And every single year, they have Terry Fox Marathon of Hope everywhere. Have you ever run in Marathon I've never run it. I've never done it, no. It's in September of every year. There's talk now that they're going to change the $5 bill. And there's talk that Terry Fox is going to be put on it, actually. I, well, I'd support that. But yeah, no, Terry Fox was from there, so very famous. Another thing is Winnie the Pooh, named after Winnipeg. So basically, the story of Winnie the Pooh was in 1914, a guy in the army by the name of Harvey Colburn, he bought a bear for $20 at a train stop in White River, Ontario. So uh, some hunter had a cub, and I don't know why, like, someone's on the side of the road selling bears. So he bought this bear for 20 bucks, and he named it Winnipeg after his hometown. So he was traveling over to England to go to the war. So him and his army unit traveled all the way to England. With the bear? With the bear, and the bear kind of became their, like, uh, a mascot or whatever, and it was all tame and everything, and they are all hanging out with the bear. And uh, when it was time to go to the war, he let it stay at the London Zoo. And the plan was that he was going to let it bring it back to the Winnipeg Zoo after the war. 
But when the war ended or whatever, the guy went back and decided to leave the, the bear at the London Zoo. Whoever wrote Winnie the Pooh, he saw the bear and his kid by the name of Christopher Robbins loved the bear and he had like a stuffed teddy bear and he changed his name. It was called Edward Bear and he changed it to Winnie the Pooh. And that's where the story originates. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Churchill, Manitoba is the polar bear capital of the world? No. Churchill, Manitoba got about a thousand people, so it's smaller than Bay Roberts. Yep. It's only about uh, 68 kilometers from the border with Nunavut. So it's like, you know, it's way, way, way up north. And for whatever reason, just polar bears roam in the streets of Churchill all the time. They actually have a polar bear jail up there in case, you know, any uh, rowdy bears need to be in prison for whatever reason. And <laughs> okay. the, the, uh, the town, the people who live in the town are encouraged to leave their car doors unlocked all the time just in case someone needs to kind of escape from a bear, from a polar bear. Polar bears are left-handed. Do you know that? No, I didn't know that. All polar bears? As they say, yeah. Are you a polar bear? I guess so. That's, that's how logic works. Barry's left-handed. All polar bears left-handed. Therefore, Barry's a polar bear. Isn't that how logic works? All right. So now let's start talking about some strange stories out of the Manitoba. So the first story I am going to discuss is the story of Billy Service. And that name does not sound made up at all. Billy Service. This is Service. a very famous story. Okay. Billy Service. It's a very, very famous story from Manitoba. It was first told in the Manitoba Free Press in July of 1873. Okay, so are we in Canada? Yes, we're already part of Canada. Yeah, we just made it. We just, just got into. We're still part. Of, we're still only a postage stamp, but we are part of Canada. Already. In July of that year, Billy Service left his house to go picking strawberries. Uh, he was a a ten year old kid. Oh, okay. Uh, he went for the day wherever he went. He didn't return that night. So, what would you assume? Uh, you're thinking about the fairies, obviously. Yes, exactly. Yeah, if he was in Newfoundland, for sure. The assumption would have been taken by the fairies, but um, he didn't return home, so uh, people got concerned, so his parents and friends went looking for him. This happened in the town of Springfield, Manitoba. Not to be confused with Springfield, Homer Simpson. It's a hell of a town. They were unsuccessful. They couldn't find him wherever he went. Uh, They spent days looking around. The story became more well-known as, you know, there's this kid lost and, you know, he went up very picking and he got lost. Search parties were developed. After a week, there was no sign of Billy. So everyone was losing hope and figured that he must be gone. No food, no water. How's he going to survive? Mm-hmm. So his dad offers a reward of $200, which I guess in 1873, $200 is a significant amount of money, wouldn't it be? Oh, I would say it's several thousand dollars. Yeah, it's a couple of gold doubloons. For sure. Finally, after 10 days, Billy was found alive and well by Peter Fiddler. He was out hunting. I wonder if that guy was related to the uh, Wendigo hunter. <laughs> Maybe. I can't remember his name, but his last name was Fiddler, and he went and hunted 14 Wendigo. Maybe this is the guy. He, he finds Wendigos and lost kids. He's such a humanitarian, this Fiddler <laughs> exactly. family. He was eight miles away from his home where he was found. So the guy in 10 days managed to travel eight miles, which is what, 14 kilometers? Uh, probably, yeah, I guess so. Give or take, so. So how would, a boy, how would you think a boy would survive for 10 days in the wild without food or water? What would you think? I would say he was looked after by the fairies. Looked after by the fairies. That's the the scientific reason, I think. Was he like looked after by a bunch of polar bear? Close. So while wa- wandering around lost, uh, Billy became uh, I came across a large mound and had an unusually large badger hole. Okay. 
So the entrance to the Badger Hall was larger than usual because it was said that it was once used by a wolf, part of being a Badger residence. I don't like the way this is going. <laughs> when it started raining, Billy decided he was going to enter the Badger Hall to try and keep warm and dry. Okay. His Badger roommates did not care for him cohabitating with them, and he began to claw and scratch him. <laughs> so Billy and his infinite winsome fought back and scratched the Badger's back when they bothered him. But eventually he began to live in harmony. So when it stopped raining, he went to pick, start picking strawberries again to eat. He ended up becoming friends with these badgers, and he played with their young, and he ended up becoming accepted by the badger family. All within 10 days? Yeah, it didn't take long. Badgers are, are very easily pleased, I guess. I guess when you're not killing them, they, 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 come, they, they come to like you pretty quick. I, I think badgers are like assholes, though. Like Yeah, I think. <laughs> right? Aren't badgers assholes? Fuck, fuck you, badgers. <laughs> the thing I know the most about badgers is they live underground, they're assholes, and wiener dogs were bred to hunt them. Oh, okay. Yeah, but anyway, no, he became accepted, became part of the badger family, and the, the parents even started bringing food back for the kid like they used to bring back to their young. Ew. So what, what would a badger bring back? Like, like regurgitated worms and stuff? Is that what it would be? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's anything good. I'm sure they're yeah. carnivores. They probably bring back old, gross, decapitated birds and <laughs> Yeah, look, here's some, some crow for you. Eat, eat the crow. <laughs> the Did he eat it? Sometimes, according to the story, sometimes he ate it, but usually he just went and got, uh, went and got his strawberries. I'm picking strawberries, which is probably a better choice. Uh, yeah, I'd definitely be going vegetarian in this situation. Yeah. Would you eat the badger carcass food or would you eat strawberries? I'll go strawberries any day. But when he was found by Peter, uh, Billy was scared. He didn't originally want to leave his badger friends. He had a good thing going here. I got a hole going. I got, you know, free <laughs> roadkill. Got strawberries. Got my buddies here scratching me. Uh, Peter described Billy as having his face scratched, his clothes torn, and his mouth and tongue swollen from the badgers picking at him. If this is a true story, and I'm just going to say now it doesn't sound like it's a true story, yeah. that would describe what you would be like if you were uh, dehydrated. Yeah, exactly. It was like he was drinking, in the story say he had to drink more, so all he could drink and things like that, right? So he probably hallucinated all this due to lack of water. Oh, yeah, I mean, the badgers were dancing around and playing football <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh-huh. The story has been retold several times, and there's actually a book written about this that, based on this event. Now, it was, it was more uh, fictionalized, but it was uh, called Incident on Hawks Hill. Incident at Hawks Hill. Okay. Yeah. It was written in 1971 by a, name, by a guy named Alan Eckert. Uh, in this version, a boy named Ben McDonald is a six-year-old mute and is considered a problem child of the family, and he has a strange attachment to wild animals. He gets lost and befriends a wild badger. Uh, he, in, this, in this version, he's lost for several months and presumed dead, but he's finally found by his father. Ben originally doesn't want to go back with his father because he wants to live with the badgers because they, he's, a, he's a badger now. Ben eventually goes with his dad, and the badger goes with him. Uh, the family accepts a badger at the farm to help protect Ben, so they kind of see this badger as like the guardian angel of Ben. Uh, their neighbor comes by, sees the badger, and as you've discussed previously, the badgers are assholes, so the neighbor tries to kill it. But the dad defends the badger, saying, you know what, you can't kill that badger. That's my son's guardian angel. And Ben and his dad connect over this. So that's that version of the story, which is which was written as a book. Won a couple of awards. And there's the author's note at the beginning of the book, and it says, this is a fictionalized account of a real historic event. So even then, they, they still say that this was a true story. What part of it do you think it's true? I think a kid was lost, and they found him in a badger hole. That's what I think. That's oh. about it. <laughs> that was the rest of it. The 10 days and this and that and playing with the badgers and jumping around and badgers feeding them regurgitated worms and all that. I don't believe any of that. 
No, I don't either. Even if there was a kid that was missing for that long and managed to survive, that's a pretty amazing story. But don't be making friends with badgers. They really are assholes. How long could you go without water, though? That's a good question. I think the rule of thumb is the rule of twos, if I'm right. So it's like two minutes without oxygen, two days without water, two weeks without food, something like that. Okay. And then if he was lost, if he was going without water for too long, he could have been hallucinating. That's one of the signs of uh, dehydration. It's it's the classic kernel of truth mm-hmm. that was end up coming a, a big tall tale, right? I mean, it'd be pretty easy. Well, maybe maybe it wouldn't be. I was going to say, like, if you could, had descendants of the of him, you know, like the family story passed down and down. But then, if I think about it in another way, beyond our own parents, I don't think I could tell you any like family history story. Well, I'll tell you the story about how the. Our great-grandfather, the Sasquatch, prevented the uh, orangeman <laughs> from marching in front of his house. Yeah, I guess I guess that's uh, that's a story. I thought I heard a story, too, once where, like, Poppy King was a, uh, he worked in a mine, and some guy blew up in front of him or something. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Probably not. I've never heard that before. Okay, that's probably something I <laughs> imagined in my brain. Eating his sandwich for lunch, and I was like, kaboom! He's <laughs> like, he wipes it off his glasses. Uh, no, I've never heard that story before. Shall I tell you my story that I that I have here? I think you shall. So I was told via the Twitterverse that Manitobans love UFOs. Okay. Everyone loves a good UFO story. We did a whole episode in our Newfoundland season on the UFOs. We did, but the, the badger watcher, no, it wasn't badgers, it was uh, raccoons. The, the raccoon whisperer guy. It was weird enough for us to do an entire Newfoundland episode dedicated to it. Um, so back then we touched on the Project Blue Book. Yep. They investigated all these UFOs. A quick reminder about Project Blue Book is they investigated like 12,000 cases and there's still a few hundred that are unresolved or unexplained. Most of those unexplained cases are like lights in the sky, that kind of deal. They don't, they can't tell what it was. But the one I'm going to tell you about here was a lot more than like something that somebody saw all the way up there. This was a close encounter. Seems like they always say it's weather balloons. Like I've never ever seen nor heard of any weather balloon for any use for any reason and we're at a point in our technology and i gotta send a balloon up there to figure out the uh, atmospheric pressure yeah i don't get it um uh, but i don't get a lot of things and that's why i'm talking about possible ufo encounters so there's a lot of well-known ufo cases of encounters and abductions some of the most popular ones you can think of kind of off the top of your head are roswell oh yeah the case of Travis Walton, the fire in the sky story. I've heard that. Okay. And Communion, the book by Whitley Stryber, the only book that I've ever read that scared me so much I couldn't go to sleep. Really? Uh, yeah, that was that was a terrifying book. And then the one that I'm going to talk about here is the case of Falcon Lake, Manitoba. Well, let me tell you what happened. On the May 2-4 weekend in 1967, a multilingual industrial mechanic and amateur prospector Stefan Michalak left his Winnipeg home to do some light prospecting at Falcon Lake, which is about 152 kilometers east of Winnipeg, pretty close to the Ontario border. So Falcon Lake is one of the many recreational areas in Manitoba. It's in the uh, part of it anyway is in is in Whiteshell Provincial Park. And it's known for all kinds of outdoorsy things like water sports and camping and probably prospecting, I guess. Stefan Michalak 
He was born in Poland in 1916, and he emigrated to Canada after World War II. His country was kind of like blown to bits and all fucked up, so he he moved on to to Canada. By all accounts, he was very normal, very intelligent guy. Uh, He lived with his family. He had a wife and three children. Eventually, they settled in Winnipeg, and they were totally typical Canadian family. Nothing outlandish or strange at all. Okay. He was not known to tell any sort of fantastic tales, and he wasn't known to abuse alcohol in any way. He was just a normal guy working as an industrial mechanic and enjoying the beauty of the Great White North. And prospecting. That was his deal. Like, everyone has a hobby. So it was the Victoria Day weekend, and he was looking forward to it because now we'd have an extra day to go looking for rocks out in the wilderness, whatever he was doing. So that Friday, he got all of his prospecting gear So that would be a map, a compass, a notebook, a pencil, welding goggles. He brought those to protect his eyes from like uh, pieces of rock flying around. Debris, yeah. Yeah, from debris. Plus whatever like hammers or tools, whatever he would use to like chip away at these rocks. He's like a real life Minecraft player. That's true. That's true. I never thought about that. But he took all of his stuff in a little bag and he got on the Greyhound bus and he went to stay in a motel near Falcon Lake. He got up early that Saturday. He was very excited. He had a whole day ahead of him, kind of on his own, in the wilderness. He really enjoyed the outdoors. Prospecting was his jam. So he trudges along till about noon. And then he thought he found a place where, like, this looks like a good place to be pecking around looking for some rock stuff. Another thing I don't know anything about. (laughs) (laughs) When I hear hear prospecting, what's the, is it Johnny Horton song, North to Alaska? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go north to Alaska. We're going north. The rush is on. Way up north. Anyway, I love Johnny Horton. I, I, I need a record of him. You do. You definitely need to go to the Valley Village and get a Burton Cummings and a Johnny Horton. I, I keep drinking. Oh, he can bring me off track. Let's, let's get back. That's all right. Um, so he found a place where he thought it would be good for some prospecting. So he got out his goggles, he got his little rucksack out and got all, all of his prospecting items out. And he's kind of like hunched over on the rocks there and he's chipping away and he thinks he finds um, some quartz. And then all of a sudden, he's completely alone in the woods and something startles him. What was it? Well, it could be a lot of things. A polar bear, it could be a badger. It was actually a gaggle of Canadian geese. A bunch of geese is called a gaggle? Yeah, a gaggle. Okay. I thought it was a murder. Uh, that's crows, a murder of crows. I know, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was shitload. I, th- I thought that was the term. <laughs> no, that's bears. Shitload of bears. <laughs> yeah, no, Canadian geese are assholes too. Badgers and geese are... T- Gain and geese are assholes. I, I agree are, with that. Are. We used to play golf and there's in this one course and there's fucking geese everywhere and then they'd be around your ball and you couldn't play them because they're, they're wonking at you. Yes, they're jerks, right? They're actually the exception that proves the rule that all Canadians are nice. <laughs> so all these assholes are honking like mad and, and Stefan is there. He's constant, He's like chipping away and his concentration gets broken and... Um, he kind of like looks up, start, you know, obviously you hear a noise, you look up. He sees all these geese flying off. But then also he sees in the sky what he describes as two cigar-shaped crafts with a hump near the middle descending from the sky. It's a weird description, but it seems to be a pretty common one. I've seen that. I've, like I remember late 90s, there was like a lot of UFO sightings in carbon air. And that's what it was specifically defined as is a cigar-shaped formations. Yeah. Okay. So as they're descending, he's just stand there like what am i seeing here now they're changing color from red to orange to gray as they get closer to the ground and also as they get closer to the ground not only are they changing color but they start changing shape so they get more oval you know they're 
elongated when they're up in the sky, like higher away. And then they start okay. kind of compressing and becoming more oval shaped. One of them lands on a nearby flat rock. About three minutes or so, he's kind of looking at this thing and like, I'm here looking for rocks. What is this I'm seeing? The second one takes off. He says it makes no sound whatsoever and it just flies away. So he's just kind of gawking at this thing, kind of not believing what he's looking at. And he described the one that landed as being a stainless steel color and it had a bright purple light coming out of the top. So he was close enough to it that he could feel that there was warm air sort of wafting off of it. And he also could smell the very distinct smell of sulfur. Like farts. Yeah. Maybe he shit his pants. <laughs> See, <he's> like, <laughs> and he could hear the sound of an electric motor. Now, remember, this guy is a mechanic. I don't think it was an electric guitar. <laughs> it was Bill and Ted. Rock and roll aliens. Diddly, diddly, diddly. He's just looking at this thing, and then he so he remembers he has his, all his prospecting gear, right, including his pencil and notepad. So he whips that out, and he starts drawing a picture. Now, these pictures are all over the internet. If you look up Falcon Lake UFO, you'll see this picture. So it's like exactly what you think a UFO looks like. How is it in relation to uh, the guy from Clarenville that the <laughs> raccoon whisperer is drawing? His thing looks like a whale with like a triangle at the end. It's a circle with a fin on it. it his thing looks like nothing. Yeah, this guy's picture was like real nice. It's got some shading, you know, it's okay. he's there. He's looking at this thing for like 30 minutes and drawing it. Okay. And he never thought it was a spaceship. He just thought it was some sort of craft that he didn't know what it was. Or he thought it was like a, like a military thing or something. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Stefan is now completely enthralled with whatever's going on in front of him. He totally forgets his rocks. Eventually he walks up to it. He does not think it's an alien. He thinks it was probably an American ship. That's okay. kind of the more logical explanation for what it is he goes up to it and he's looking all around to look for like a flag or, or you know some sort of symbol but he doesn't see anything it's completely smooth he sees no weld lines just nothing it's just fully smooth object so as he gets close enough to it he says he can hear two distinct voices at least two distinct voices they're muffled he doesn't know what they're saying but because of there's different pitches he can yep. figure out there's at least two people talking in there so based on the weird smell, the mm -hmm. sound of the wonky motor, the fact that it landed in the middle of nowhere, he thought it was some sort of craft that was having some mechanical trouble. Okay. All right. This is my very favorite part of the story. So he walks on up to this craft, being a mechanic and a helpful guy, and he says, quote, okay, Yankee boys, having trouble? <laughs> Come on <laughs> out and we'll see what we can do about it. Yankee boys. Right. He gets no response. Surprisingly. They're like, we're from Georgia. We're not Yankees. And he also, they stopped talking. Whatever was in there talking, they stopped talking. Okay. So then he's like, oh, maybe it's not the Americans. Maybe it's the Russians. So he asks in Russian the same thing. Well, not Yankee boys. I guess he says, hey, what, Ruskies? <laughs> Ruskies? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ruskies. No. So he calls out in Russian. He speaks Russian? But he's a multilingual motherfucker. Listen to this guy. He asks in Russian, gets nothing. Then he tries in German. Then Italian, then French, and then Ukrainian. Wow. But he doesn't get any response, no matter what language. So he's like, well, maybe they're in distress. So he gets even closer, and as he gets closer, an opening happens, he says. He does what no normal person would do, and he pokes his head in to see what's going on. He says the lights are so bright that he doesn't see anything discernible. It's just like lights. 
And he puts, you know, he's got those welding goggles. So he puts the shield down on these welding goggles and he's like trying to look around, but it's still, it's, they're too bright. You can't see anything. So he puts his head in and he takes his head out because he doesn't see anybody in distress or whatever. And when he takes his head out of the ship, he sees like all these red spots in front of him. Like that's how bright the lights were. It really okay. affected his vision. Suddenly, two panels close up that opening that he poked his head into to see if there was any Americans, Russians, Germans, Italians, Ukrainians, <laughs> or whatever in there. Um, and it closes up. So he puts his hand on the ship and he's wearing these gloves. Prospecting gloves? Yeah, standard prospecting gloves. No, they kind of look like if you were doing heavy work in the yard. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so he's wearing those kinds of things. So he touches the hull of the ship and all the fingertips of his gloves burn. Oh, wow. It's that hot. He's like, you know, what the fuck? Finally, at this point, he's thinking, this is very strange. So he stands back. Suddenly, the ship starts to turn in a counterclockwise way. As it turns, a blast of hot air comes out of this. It looks like a grid of dots, okay. like an exhaust system. Catches his shirt on fire. So he pulls off his shirt. It's on fire. He throws it on the ground. He stomps it out. And then some of the grass around there catches on fire. So he stomps that grass out, too, because the last thing he wants to do is to be Bambi-style, you know, stuck in yeah. a forest fire. And then the craft flies off, silent, no explanation, no nothing, yeah. just silently takes off. After all of these things... <laughs> He's standing there, no shirt. He's burned. He's got his gloves burnt up. He's got his spots in front of his eyes. He's totally freaked out. So he says, hmm, I'm all by myself. I should probably get the fuck out of here. Yeah, good decision. Pack up the pick, his can of beans, and go. He gathers up all of his stuff, and he's like, you know, before I go, I want to take a closer look at this site where this ship was. He walks up closer, and he describes it as it looked like somebody came in with a broom and swept the whole place clear. There's not a pebble, not a twig, no. bare rock. And as he gets closer to this landing site, he suddenly gets a really extreme headache, and he feels nauseous. Okay. So now he's like, definitely got to get out of here. I do not want to be barfing my guts up in the woods by myself. There's nothing worse than feeling nauseous. No, it's, it's not very pleasant. No. All you want to do is lie on the cold bathroom floor, right? Yep. But he's out in the wilderness. And he walked a couple hours to get out there. Like, that's how far he is. He's feeling very sick. He's disoriented. He couldn't read his map or his compass because his vision was so affected. He's seen all these spots. Still. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He puked. He started to kind of just walk out of the woods and he couldn't navigate properly. So he started looking at familiar sites that he had seen coming in. Basically, that's how I navigate everywhere. I don't yeah. <laughs> I ain't reading no compass, I tell you that. No, no. I, I'm assuming I was abducted by aliens, and that's why I can't navigate. But uh, the reason why he can't navigate, though he normally can, is because he can't uh, see the details enough because his vision is so bad. So he's shirtless and puking and headache and he's spot seeing <laughs> and staggering out of the woods. Finally, he makes his way to the highway, and an RCMP officer finds him there. At this point... He thinks that he's had his exposure to something. He thinks radiation. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so he says to the police officer, you know, stay back. I don't want to expose you to the radiation. This is a, a strange spot in the story for me because it seemed like the Mountie was just like, all right, well, have a good day, which I don't think that's what would happen. No. You think they would try to help me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you, if you stagger upon somebody in the middle of nowhere. And the guy says, you stay away or you'll get radiation poison. <laughs> I can't imagine the cops say, all right, best kind, and go on. 
of all the things so far in the story, to me, that was the least believable part. Yeah. Take that for what it is. He makes his way back to his motel. At least he's at his home base, but he's still afraid to go in because he doesn't want to expose anybody in there. So he sits outside the motel for a couple hours and then he can't stand it anymore. He is feeling like he was run over by a truck. Yeah. So he goes inside and he asks the waitress in the restaurant, is there a doctor anywhere near? Unfortunately, the closest doctor is 45 miles away. How many kilometers is that? 65, 70 kilometers. Yeah, a long way away. It's actually not even in Manitoba. Like the closest doctor is in Ontario. Okay. He figured at that point, he's in no shape to travel anywhere, right? He figured his best bet is to go rest. Yeah. So he goes to the motel and he's feeling worse. He's getting fever. He's getting chills, sweats. He's got this freaking headache. It's killing him. He's nauseous. He can't see. He's just feeling the worst. It finally becomes too much. He's like, <laughs> the hell with the prospecting. He calls his wife. He says, there's been an accident. I got to mm. come home. He says, can you get uh, the oldest son to come pick me up at the bus station? Yeah. It's like four hours later is when the next bus comes. And he'd take a bus? His son couldn't just drive him, couldn't drive back, couldn't drive it to get him at the motel? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, I guess, well, the son, I think, was 17. I don't know if that was part of the factor uh, of it. Uh, either way. Like I said, it must suck if you felt like that and you have to take a bus ride for a couple hours, whatever long it was. Have you ever had to travel anywhere sick? Yeah. I had food po- I think it was food poison. I must have had food poisoning one time and I had to fly the next day. My biggest fear, I was going to puke on the plane because I was puking all night before, but luckily I didn't. Oh, really? But yeah, it was horrible. I was. I remember I was in the hotel in New Orleans just lying on the floor. Oh, that's the worst. It's the worst. Like all you want to do yeah. is be home. Yeah. This yeah. guy had to wait four hours for the next bus to come. Yeah. Regardless of whatever happened, like the reason why, he was sick. Yeah. And then the 150-kilometer bus ride. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. That must sucked. Yes. Uh, he makes it back to Winnipeg, finally, without any rocks. Right? Now he's back in kind of civilization of Winnipeg. So up to this point, everything that happens is his story. It's his alone. He was by himself. Yeah. But when he gets back to Winnipeg, then things really start to get weird. His son picks him up. It's about 10 p.m. on Saturday. So remember, by the time he got to his prospecting place, it was about noon. So this is 10 hours later. Okay. They go right to the hospital. The son is like, you are going to the hospital. I don't even care. At the hospital, Stefan's torso was in such pain from that burn that he got on his uh, body that he couldn't even have his clothes touch it. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was like 70s disco style shirt open. Um, Again, pictures all over the internet of this. Nothing could touch his skin. And the burns on his body had a very distinct pattern. And that pattern was of a grid of dots. It looked like there's four dots across and five dots down and almost like a perfect grid. The doctor at the hospital gave him sedatives and treated his burns and then he, he went home. But his symptoms persisted. In addition to the headache, the vision, all that kind of stuff, he lost his appetite. Might have been a, a side effect of being nauseous. Yeah. Over time, he lost a lot of weight. But I think it was like 30, 40 pounds. That's so like a lot uh-huh. of weight. And he wasn't a big man, right? Like he didn't have that to lose. He went to see his family doctor and he gave him some seasickness pills and that helped with his nausea and painkillers. And that helped him, but he was still in pretty bad shape. So the story got out and the family was just harassed by reporters. They all wanted to know the story about the UFO at Falcon Lake. Now, mind you, Michelek never thought it was an alien. Even at this point? No. He thought he saw some sort of military craft or something like that. 
Like never in his whole life? Uh, by the end of his life, he got more to the fact of, I don't know what I saw. You're going to think whatever you want to think. Okay. A couple days later, he's tested for radiation because he has all these symptoms yep. of radiation. And it's shown that radiation levels in his body were normal range. Maybe it was psychosomatic. I don't know. But he started to feel better. In the weeks following, journalists and the RCMP plus the Royal Canadian Air Force, they tried to locate this place you know, that he described, and they were not successful. Three weeks after the encounter, uh, Mishlak developed a V-shaped rash. It went from his ears all the way down to the middle of his chest. Wow. He just went to the doctor and they sort of treated the rash. Uh, about a month later, he and one of his friends decided they were going to go and locate the site. They actually found it. And there they found the remains, some of the remains of his burned shirt. And they took some soil samples and a photo and all that kind of stuff. When they went there, they noticed that the site where the thing landed, all the trees all around, the branches that were on the lower part were all wilting and dying. Oh, wow. They went back to the RCMP and, and the and the Air Force. I keep wanting to say Air Force. <laughs> but, <laughs> the Air Force. Yeah. And they say, I, we found where it is. They go there. They took some soil samples and they did not see any like dangerous levels of radiation. Five months after the incident, Michelak swelled up and turned violet. He was at work one day and he just suddenly started swelling up. His vision blurred. His throat felt like it was closing off. It was the weirdest thing in the world. He didn't know what was going on. He went to the doctor and they diagnosed him with having an allergic reaction to something. They didn't know what. He never had a reaction before, never had one after. It was just a thing that suddenly happened. On September 30th, they went back to the site again. He should have just stayed away at this point. Yeah, he said, enough for that place, yeah. Yeah, but he went back there and he saw, you know, the first time they went back, the limbs were dying. Yeah. When he went back in September, uh, within 50 feet all the way around, all the vegetation was dead. Everything oh. had died all around it. And even today at this landing site, nothing grows. Really? Yeah. It's really, really weird. Fairy ring. Maybe that's what a fairy ring is. So this incident is intensely investigated by American and Canadian authorities and by our amateur people that just want to figure out what's what, like yep. us. It's one of those cases that was unexplained. And it's probably the most well-documented unexplained case of an encounter. Like he stuck his head in the ship, according to him. Yeah. The reasons why it was unexplained was, number one, the gloves, you know, the glove that he touched and he burned the fingertips on, those were examined and nobody could figure out what could have caused that kind of a burn. Okay. A year later, when the authorities went back and studied the area, they found one piece of radioactive metal that was kind of tucked down underneath the cracks of the rocks and nobody could explain where that came from okay. randomly in the woods. A 15 meter radius of the alleged landing site, no plants would grow and still don't grow. Nothing. Even though like the similar areas all around, yeah. stuff grows like normal. And for a year and a half after the initial event, every three months on Michelac's torso, that grid shape pattern would rise up, like the bumps would rise up again, and then they'd go away. For how long? It went on for about a year and a half. No, for how long, like when they rise up, they'd be there for like an hour, two hours, a day, a week? They didn't say how long it would happen for, but it, they would come up and then they would go away every three wow. months. And then he was analyzed by a psychiatrist, you know, like, are you just like making stories up or whatever, right? 
And the psychiatrist deemed that he was very pragmatic and not prone to making up stories. And anecdotally, like before this happened, that was also how he was sort of viewed. Yep. He wasn't a crackpot. And he wasn't someone who would abuse alcohol or anything like that. Finally, one of the things that contributes to this being like, maybe it was an alien thing, was at around that same time, there was about 20 other UFO sightings in that area. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So Michelac died in 1999. He was 83 years old. He never recanted his story, but he did say that he wished he had never told anybody what he'd seen. It turned their whole family's life upside down. People were questioning his sanity. Many people started to think he was a drunk. He was making up stories. His family was harassed. His youngest kid was bullied at school. Like your dad is the alien guy and he would get beat up all the time. Like nothing good came out of it for him. The doubters would have said that he made up the story for publicity and to make money, but he did not make any money out of it at all. And he got just all negative publicity, really. Just brought misery, yeah. And not only did he not make any money, he actually lost money. He, out of his own pocket, went to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota to figure out, why am I getting these raised bumps every, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they were not able to find out what the cause was of anything. UFO researchers have looked at this case from every angle for years and years and years. And one of these guys tried to contact the Mayo Clinic to get their comment about what happened. And the Mayo Clinic says, we don't know who that is. We've never treated anyone like that. Oh, wow. Even though Michelac had in his own records, like, here's all the bills I paid, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Another thing that a doubter would say was that he made up the story to keep other prospectors away. I got my courts. Right. But if you look at it from the other side, he never laid any claim in that area. And also it did the complete opposite of keeping people away. It made everyone come to want to look yeah. at it. And then, and this is a dumb one, I think, people said that he was just drunk and fell on a barbecue. That's what those, the dots were. Jeez. Even so, like, it wouldn't come back every three months or anything like that. Like, Right. Plus all the other things like the nausea, the headaches, the spots, the, you know, the swelling up, like all those other symptoms would not. Coincide with that, yeah. Exactly. The legacy of the Falcon Lake UFO incident was the original Unsolved Mysteries TV show. Did an episode yeah. on it back in 1992. One of the best shows okay. ever on TV. Yeah. The Canadian Mint. There it is. I was, I was about to say. <laughs> Always. Did we get one? Did we get a coin or a stamp? or a... Got a coin. Canadian Mint issued a one ounce silver $20 glow-in-the-dark coin of the incident. Mm-hmm. It's shaped like a guitar pick. It's pretty cool. How much is it? You can't buy it now, but I think it retailed for like 130 something dollars. Yeah. They, they're very limited prints on those things or runs on those things. Yeah. I want to say they made like 4,000 of them, like really okay. limited. But it's one ounce of almost pure silver. Um, they should have made it out of quartz. They should have. Should have made it out of alien. Uh... Radioactive metal. And then the final part of the you know legacy for this is it, it's one of the most well-documented and researched cases of um, unidentified mm-hmm. flying objects in the whole world. Not just Canada or Manitoba. The whole world. What do you think it was? If there's any truth at all, if any of the parts of his story that he told were true... I don't know. It, of all the cases I've seen or heard of, this might be the most believable one that it would be an alien. Yeah. The fact that you say where nothing still grows in this area, I mean, mm-hmm. to this day, I mean, that's pretty compelling. I mean, you have to really keep up the lie if you're lying about to go up there and like salt the earth every so often so nothing would grow. That's what one of the points that his son was saying in this book. 
you know, people said it was a giant hoax. And he's like, if my father was hoaxing this, then he was a friggin' genius. Yeah. And for what reason? Just for the hell of it? Like, he had a comfortable life. He yep. lived in Winnipeg. He had a nice little job, right? He was very happy to be in Canada, loved Canada, loved the outdoors, loved his prospecting, mm. all that kind of stuff. Three normal children. Just, he was the standard normal person. There's no reason why he would have done this hoax. He got nothing yeah. from it. In fact, he got the opposite of nothing. He, got, he was worse off because of it. It would yeah. seem so. Can you go there now? Like, is there any kind of uh, heritage site or, or can you just hike up in the woods and go see? I guess you can hike up in the woods and go see, but is there any kind of commemorative setup at that location? You know? Like uh, you can organize a yeah, trip Yeah, like there. it's fenced off or there's a sign there or this is where this happened. I'm glad you asked that because this is one of the weirdest things for me about this. When I tried to Google just pictures of the site, I couldn't find any. You got sick. I did. So anyway, that's a, that's a UFO story. I mean, what do you think? I don't know. Like I said, it's definitely one of the best stories I've ever heard. Like I said, is direct contact and the after effects of it. And, and the fact that, that to me, the biggest thing is that nothing grows there anymore. It, maybe nothing ever grew there, right? I mean, that's, that could be the, the hoaxes person's, uh, nothing ever grew there anyway. So For some other reason. Yeah, for some other reason, you know, but I, I think based on the way you tell it and the way this guy sounds, I mean, it sounds one of the most compelling cases I've ever heard. Again, maybe it was aliens, maybe it was experimental ship, and they're like, no, it's unexplained. It's better to let people think it might be aliens than to let the people know what we're really developing. Yeah, could be that, yeah. But whatever he saw, it was unidentified to him, and it did have a lasting effect on his physical health for quite some time, yep. and then pretty much for his mental health for the rest of his life. And he gained nothing from it. That's the other thing. You know what I think it was? I think it was the device that caused the Bell Island boom. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, that was part of it. That is a very unexplainable event as well. Yeah. I don't know what caused that thing. That was super weird, which is why it was our first episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I do believe there's probably military craft that's never been seen or has been tested and never been, for the reason, scrapped. Like the, well, the Avro Arrow is not really a good example of that, but... The what? The Avro Arrow. I don't know what that is. You know what that... Uh, the Avro Arrow was like a, an experimental aircraft that was created by the Canadian military. And apparently it was very... Uh, back in the 60s, I want to say. It was very ahead of its time. Okay. But it just got scrapped. They, they made a prototype. It worked really well. And it was like a fast ship. And it did all this crazy stuff that other military craft didn't do. But they just scrapped it for no reason. Or I'm not sure why. But there's a heritage minute about it. Dan Aykroyd's in the heritage minute. It would probably be naive to think that, you know, in, in the vastness of the universe, there's not some other place where there's life. Yes. I've never really believed that it's made it here. The, the assumption always is they're the super advanced race. And maybe, you know, maybe out there is a super advanced race, but it could be so far away that you'll never ever get there, right? There's no yes. technology that can get us there. But this here is certainly the most compelling case I've ever heard. It's definitely something, but on the other side of it, it might be more likely that it was some experiment. Yeah. And to keep it secret and knowing that people believe in UFOs, the powers that be, it might be better for them to just say, unexplained, I don't know, you think whatever you want, you know. Yeah, the bright, the bright lights thing really throws me off, though. Like, like, if it was too bright for him, it'd be too bright for whoever's in there, unless he had, like, some special goggles that they had to wear when they're flying this experimental ship. Maybe it was a drone. Yeah. That's, well, when was this again? It was 1967. So maybe it was like experimental drone. Could have been. And, and another interesting about, thing about this is that he never believed it was UFO first and last. 
I mean, he knew it was something that he didn't know what it was, but he wasn't like, I saw aliens. You know, that was yeah. never his deal with it. It was just like, I don't know what I saw. I'm. This is what I saw. I don't know what yeah. it was. If it was like an experimental military craft and he, those two people are in there talking and all of a he heard somebody outside and he must be like, oh shit. There were probably a couple of goof ups. Probably took it for a laugh flying around. Like, oh fuck, now what do we do? Right. And then they didn't know what they were doing and they caused some kind of mechanical difficulty. There's probably two sets of, of bros, one set in each craft, and one set of bros really fucked it up more than the other set of bros and had to land. And the other ones that flew off were probably like, oh, I'm getting the hell out of here. That was Goose and Maverick and Iceman and the other, the other volleyball player was the other guy. <laughs> I didn't put this in my story, but uh, he did say that he saw some jorts. He <laughs> did hear playing with the boys was in the background, I think. <laughs> so... Anyway, something happened. Something definitely weird happened. And whether it was an alien or whatever, it was a some weird story. Definitely. UFOs. And uh, what else do we have? We have a good old-fashioned haunted theater. Love it. Theaters are very haunted. Yeah, they always are. They seem to be. And theater, people work in theaters are people that are on stage or actresses and actors. They're very superstitious. Yeah. I mean, they have the whole break a leg in Winnipeg, there's a theater called the Walker Theater, built in 1907. At the time, it was built at a cost of $250,000, so I have no idea what that is in today's dollars, but I'm sure it's well over a million, I would think, at least four or five times that. Yeah, I would say. At the time, it was a state-of-the-art facility, held just under 1,800 people, and it had an auditorium, the lobbies, everything was decorated with Italian marble, um, really good plaster work, velvet carpets, silk tapestries, all the, the, the bells and whistles for a theater, right? So mm -hmm. this was a really well-done theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's actually currently in a National Historic Site of Canada. So it was given the status in 1991. But in terms of some weird, why are we talking about it? Because it's also known to be haunted, as most theaters are. They are. I mean, even the AMC around the corner is probably haunted. <laughs> Pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> Someone died watching Avatar back in the day. The, the movie goes off and you still see the blue guy floating around. Uh, why is this one haunted? The reason for this one is back in 1913, a notable acting couple from London by the name of Lawrence Irving and Mabel Hackney, they were performing at the theater. They did like four different plays over a run of however long it was. The performances led to rave reviews. And everyone was like, bravo, and stand it up and give them the, the big standing ovations. So they were moved by the uh, reception they got from the good people of Manitoba. So they promised that they'd come back and perform at a later date. Wonderful. Yeah, so they were doing their big tour, and this was their last stop. So they're, after this tour, they're, they're going back to London. They were planning on going back to London on a steamship. They're actually, I think they sailed through to St. Lawrence. They originally booked uh, passage back to London uh, through Liverpool on the, the Corsican, which was some boat, but uh, I guess... A friend of theirs convinced him to transfer to a larger Canadian Pacific sister ship, the Empress of Ireland. But I guess these are fairly prominent actors, and they got a, their spot on a better vessel. Okay. So on May 29th at about 2 a.m., this vessel was rammed by a Norwegian ship. Because? Fog shrouded St. Lawrence River. It wasn't an attack or nothing like that. It was just a uh, an unfortunate accident due to fog, which us people in Newfoundland know all about. Do you get fog in... in, in uh, New Jersey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we got the Jersey Shore. It will get foggy here in New Jersey, but certainly it's nothing like Newfoundland fog. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in Newfoundland, we have a saying, it's old as the first fog. Like, that's how prominent fog is in Newfoundland culture. Doesn't the wonderful grand band have a song, Living in a Fog? I think that was about smoking pot, though. Oh, was it? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. 
Yeah, so again, this, these two ships collided due to intense fog in St. Lawrence River, and it claimed 1,012 lives. This was <gasps> Canada's worst peacetime maritime disaster. So this was a, a pretty big deal, right? Two of the uh, people that died in this were the lovely acting couple of Lawrence and Mabel. Winnipeg theatergoers were shocked by their deaths. And again, before they left the stage and gave their audience a farewell, they promised to come back because they said they had such rave reviews and such a warm welcome from the people of Winnipeg. So, of course, they did come back. But how did they come back? Ghost style. Ghost style, baby. Very sad story that they died. Irving and Hackney were last seen clasping each other's arms as the ship sailed beneath the waves. His body was found still clutching a fragment of his wife's dress. Unfortunately, her body was never found. Their death was commemorated by a shiny copper plaque that was installed in the lobby of this theater in 1915, since this was the last place that they performed. A lot of ghost sightings has happened in this place since then from these two people. A lot of them here are being recounted by Kenny Jackson, who was a person that worked at this theater. He never did believe in ghosts until he first saw them with his own eyes, right? There was one night, a sound technician and himself, and I'm not sure exactly what he did in the theater, but they were getting ready to close up the theater, and they said, oh, let's have a beer. I, um, I guess they might have had a fridge there. They had a few beers after work or while they're closing or whatever. They were sitting there having a beer, and uh, they looked over, and they saw something on the stage just rise at the stage, and it was a stocky woman in a black dress. Oh. She seemed to rise up from the floor and disappear. It was only for a second, too. No wave, no hello. They just kind of appeared out of nowhere and just floated away. Would you be okay if you saw something like that? Like, would you be scared, or w- would you be like, yes, that was pretty awesome? I'd be scared of the French shit. Of that? Like, she didn't do anything but rise up. She didn't, like, attack you or... I still would want... <laughs> okay. All right. I think that would be pretty cool to see. Cool would not register with me. I'd be like, what the fuck? I'm getting the fuck out of here. And that's what <laughs> these guys did, actually. Oh, okay. So basically, he turned to his buddy and said, uh, did you just see what I just saw? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he, they bolted out of there. Like, fuck this. Dropped the beers and went on, right? All right. They've experienced many eerie, unexplainable moments at the theater since that time. Uh, you always hear people walking up wooden stairs in the second balcony. Lights would go on and off. Shadows moving in an otherwise empty building. And again, there's an undeniable feeling of being watched. There's one time a guy came in with a dog. The dog started going nuts and barking and barking and barking to a room at the fourth floor. So they opened up the door. That's what gets me when the dog starts yeah. seeing stuff. I'm like, yep, there's totes something there now. Yeah, when the dog starts freaking out and you can't see it, you know, they got heightened senses, so you know there's something going on, right? I do think that. But anyway, the dog was barking at this uh, door. They opened it up, nothing in there. He's come friends with this ghost, or he's come friendly with her. So he talked to her and tell her jokes or something like that. He's kind of saying, hey, Mabel, how are you, when he, when he feels her presence. But luckily for him, he says she's never answered yet, because he says if she ever answered, he'd probably take off, and that'd be the last he ever see of him. That feeling, and everybody who has had it, of being watched... It's probably the creepiest feeling that one could yeah, have. Yeah, it is the worst. Have you ever had it and actually saw the person staring at you afterwards? Or? No. Oh, you mean like a real person? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no. Have you? Um, I can say yes because I can't think of a, uh, a specific incident. It's sort of happened in school or something one time. And was, uh, I feel like someone's staring at me. Look up. The teacher would be staring at you or something like that. That's not creepy. Jackson also tells a story about there's a one female staffer who uh, wasn't comfortable. She's like a new staff there. And she was working, and all of a sudden, she suddenly got that feeling where she wasn't alone. She came running out of the balcony and ran to the front door and said she wasn't coming back and never did show up to get a paycheck or whatever. So she just said, enough of this, gone, out the door, see you later. And that was it for that place. Didn't even get her paycheck. That must have been pretty terrifying. Yeah. And one other thing about this theater that's very interesting is that in 2002, it was renamed in somebody's honor. And it's somebody we spoke about at the beginning. So who do you think that was? All right. Burton Cummings. That is correct. It's now yes. called the Burton Cummings Theater. 
These eyes do, do, do. are crying. So yeah, named after Burton Cummings. Okay. But yeah, that's the theater. It's a haunted theater, like any old building is. It's always haunted. All right, so I have a couple of questions for you regarding your story. Number one, okay. assuming that if you become a ghost, you have to die like in an unexpected way. Yep. Like in a boat crash or something. So number one, what do you think would be the worst unexpected way to die? Drowning, they say, is the worst way to die. How do they gather evidence about that? Or do they just know, <laughs> right? Or do they just know like physiologically this is what would happen to you in that situation? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, anybody's ever had that feeling where they're underwater and they can't get a breath? I mean, panic sets in pretty quick. So I, I can imagine that being not a good way to go. Without question, that's my number one, drowning. Number two, if you did come back as a ghost, where would you hunt? Because apparently you only get to choose one. I'd hunt Burton Cummings. <laughs> yeah, I'd hunt Burton Cummings' mustache. Uh, Where would I hunt? I'd probably do the traditional graveyard or something like that. That'd be a good place to hunt because people are going in to see their dead relatives and you start floating around. I think that would be a good little hobble. Never, I, I, I got to say, I haven't put much thought into it in my life where I'd hunt when I die. You got to make these plans now. Uh, theaters always have those kind of haunting stories. In fact, like the whole Phantom of the Opera, it's all about a haunted theater, really. Yeah. So it's an interesting story for sure. So that was our episode on Manitoba. The postage stamp. Why are they called the postage? Oh, because it was a different shape. Yeah, it, it was a one-eighteenth in size, and it wasn't all up the Arctic. It was only one little square. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, now it's all the way up in the Arctic. Polar bears roaming around and stuff up there. It's an interesting place. I'd go to Manitoba and have a Slurpee. Oh, yeah, definitely. See a haunted theater. Have a Slurpee. Fight a polar bear. Sleep in a badger hole. <laughs> one night. Listen to Burton Cummings. And uh, visit the gravesite of Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's buried there, but... Uh... Well, the birth site then. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so Manitoba, they got stories. Apparently, they love UFOs there. In fact, the stories of reporting UFOs actually goes back to the 1700s in Manitoba. Like the first really? explorers uh, in their journals wrote about strange lights in the sky and everything. The fur traders. Yes, pretty much. So this is all not new, but, you know, crazy things happen in Manitoba between the curling, the slurpees, badger holes, and UFOs. It's a pretty weird place. All kinds of weird shit going on in Manitoba. So if you want to tell us about any weird shit that you know about Manitoba or for any general comments you want to make, you can reach out to us via email at somewhereedpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at somewhereedpod or our website, which is somewhereedpodcast.com. There you go. You can submit stories there if you want. You can check it out. You can, if you're interested to see what the faces look like behind the voices, we got some pictures up there. I actually stole your picture from your Facebook, by the way. I noticed that. Picture me and mom at Disney World. Yeah, I cut mom out, though. She listens. That's good enough. We don't need to drag her into our tomfoolery. If you do like what you hear, please tell a friend. Please rate us on on iTunes. Someone gave us a two-star rating. And you know what? People get upset about that. I'm not upset about it at all. I'd love, if you're listening to Star Reviewer, I'd love you to email us and tell us why you think, what can we do better? Because we'd like to know. I'd be very curious. Yeah. We've been quite fortunate, except for, the, except for that one two-star review, mystery review. Um, we've got nothing but positive feedback. And the show is growing from where it started when I was like, hey, Barry, we should do a podcast and talk about weird stuff. And you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> our original goal, our original goal, as everybody knows, was that one person that we didn't know would listen. We eclipsed that very quickly. Yeah. I think we have listeners in 
10 or 11 countries right now, Yeah, I think. which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Listen, it is fucking foolishness. But anyway, stories from Manitoba. There's some weird, Vi. Some weird. Badgers are, are very easily pleased, I guess. <laughs>